Well, uh, you youngsters, I want to give you uh, a bit of a history lesson here. Uh, that, does anyone know what that is? Anyone under 20 know what that is? <laughs> uh, that is called uh, a floppy disk drive. Um, it's a five and a quarter inch floppy disk drive. First produced in 1978, it could hold a massive 360 kilobytes, which means that the 18 megabyte file of that photo of a floppy disk would take 50 floppy disks to hold. Uh, I remember saving some university assignments on a disk like that in 1986. Uh, and that is a Tandy Radio Shack TRS-80 personal computer. I remember using one of those in Year 8 maths in about 1978. Uh, it had four kilobytes of RAM, expandable to 48 kilobytes, and a cassette tape player to load programs. I remember learning to write simple programs in basic uh, computer language, but that was about it. It couldn't even cope with lowercase letters. <laughs> now, those are old technologies. Uh, a history lesson is about all they're good for. Uh, they were a good place to begin, they were a good foundation for newer technologies that came along, but there's no way you'd ever go back and use them. Uh, they're useless, they're obsolete, and the new is so much better. Now, that's the exact argument that the preacher of Hebrews is using. Uh, but instead of new and old computers, it's about new and old covenants uh, of Christianity and Judaism. Uh, today we're looking at the start of the letter uh, to the Hebrews, which is another name for Jews. And it's got the title Hebrews because this is a letter, first and foremost, written to Christians uh, who are Jewish, who, are, who used to be Jewish, uh, who used to practice the Jewish religion, but are now Christians. And even more specifically, it's written to those who attempted to go back, uh, to give up being Christian and go back to being Jewish. If you like, they're tempted to turn on the old computer and pull out the old floppy disk drive because they think that the good old days were better. But the danger is that they're at the risk of throwing away their freedom and going back to the old legalism. They're at risk of throwing away the confidence that they have before God in Jesus and going back to the uncertainty of their own performance. The biggest danger of all is they're uh, at risk of rejecting Jesus himself and going back to priests and temples because they think they can do a better job of bringing them to God. And so the whole letter of Hebrews is written to convince them not to do that. If you want a single sentence summary, uh, Elsa likes the, these summaries that she can write down quickly. This is it. Jesus is better, so don't turn back. Jesus is better. Now, it's a message that gets repeated in slightly different ways all the way through the book in terms that seem a little strange to our ears, but they're, they're very Jewish. Uh, time after time, the theme is going to be the same. Jesus is better than what you had before. So don't go backwards. Now I don't know what going backwards uh, might look like for you. Uh, most of us aren't Jewish, so that's not the temptation. Uh, perhaps at present you know the joy of having your sin forgiven. Don't go back to feeling guilty. 
Perhaps you know for certain your identity and your purpose in life. Don't go back to confusion and aimlessness. Perhaps you know the confidence of asking God for anything in prayer because you ask in Jesus' name. Don't go back to doubt. Don't go back to coping on your own. Uh, Perhaps you know contentment. Don't go back to complaining and dissatisfaction. Whatever it is, don't go back to what you knew before you knew Jesus because Jesus is better. So chapter 1, we're introduced to the first way Jesus is better. He's a better messenger, a better messenger from God. Have a look at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, just before we think about those words, notice what is not there. There's no from Paul to the church at. We're straight into this introduction because Hebrews is unique in the New Testament. Hebrews is written as a sermon transcript. Uh, perhaps it's like you know, just the same sort of thing that you might pick up on the, on the back table there that you can follow along with. Now, there are clues all the way through the book of Hebrews that it's meant to be spoken. It's meant to be heard rather than read. And this, is the, this, this beginning is one of those clues. And the Christian Reformed Church, this sort of thing happens quite a bit. When a church is vacant, when they don't have a minister, rather than a member of the church or an elder preparing a sermon, most of the time another minister will write a sermon and send the sermon and then an elder will stand up and read that out. Now, that's what's going on here. And the very first thing that we read uh, in verse 1 is that our God is a God who communicates. Now, we take that for granted, I think, but if you stop and think about it, that's pretty special. No other nation's God communicates the way the God of the the Bible does. Just open your Old Testament to see. God spoke through the prophets in dreams. Now, that's pretty exceptional but that's one of the ordinary ones (laughs) one time God spoke by making a hand appear and write on a wall perhaps you know that story another time he actually spoke through a donkey other times he would send a message to a prophet and the prophet would say God thus says the Lord and with Moses on the mountain God gave uh, him Israel's law written on slabs of stone apparently hand-delivered by an angel, which must have seemed pretty cool. Though that was in the past. God spoke to our ancestors in lots of different ways back then. But verse 2, look at it, by comparison, in these last days, there's been an upgrade. He's spoken to us by his son. Now here's the point. You think that having a dream or a donkey speaking or a handwriting on a wall is pretty special. But that's old technology. It's been superseded. That's the sort of stuff God did before. But now he's revealed himself once and for all in his son. What's so special about a son? Well, keep reading. Uh, Verse 2, this son Jesus, he's the one who inherits all things. His treasury is full. Not only that, this is the son through whom God made the universe. 
He has unbelievable ultimate power. And then verse 3, the Father sent him to earth in human form like us, but also the exact representation of God. You look at Jesus, you're looking at God. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Two different metaphors there. If God is the Son, uh, then Jesus is like the, the beams of light, the, the, the rays that come off the Son. The second metaphor, the exact representation of his being, it's about uh, a, a die that stamps a coin. You look at the, the die, it's got a certain image. You look at the coin, it's got an image. Uh, that's the Father, that's the Son. He's the image, the perfect image of the original. To top it off, verse 3 says, After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This incredibly great one uh, who created the universe became the greatest human being of all time, but then he died on a cross for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. But then he went to heaven to rule beside his father. He sat down at his right hand. He sat down firstly because he'd finished the work of purifying. And secondly, he sat down because he's ruling. So he's not just the origin of the universe. He's not just the climax and the goal of the universe. He's the king and the saviour of the universe. And yet some of these Jewish Christians are tempted to say, oh no, I'm bored of Jesus, or I'm tired of Jesus, or I really wish we could go back. Let's go back to the rules of the Old Testament. Because they were given to Moses by an angel. It's interesting if you look at intertestamental writings, that is sort of non-Bible books written between the, the finish of the Old Testament about 400 BC and the start of the New Testament about zero. Those 400 years have a, a whole mass of uh, books that were written by Jews and it reveals how they were fascinated with angels. All sorts of stories about different levels of angels. Now, if you actually go to the Old Testament, there's not a lot of detail about angels. But what is there describes them as very impressive. Most people who see an angel in the Old Testament, they fall down terrified, even in the New Testament. So at first sight, perhaps Jesus doesn't seem as exciting as angels. I mean, he doesn't have wings to start with. Uh, most of the time, he doesn't glow with a dazzling light. He was born in a cow shed as a helpless baby and he died covered in blood on a shameful cross. By comparison, angels in the story seem to fly around and do amazing things and uh, carry messages from God. But who's the most impressive? Well, you might think the angels until you remember that the baby, when the baby Jesus was born on Christmas Day, there were actually thousands of angels around singing in praise of that baby because they knew that he was really the boss. Verse 4 makes it clear that after Jesus returned to heaven, it became obvious who was in charge. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. 
he's way better. He's so far above the angels. And then the rest of chapter 1 spells out the ways in which he's superior. And and verses from the Old Testament are quoted to prove it. So verse 5, what's this name that he inherited? Well, God never called an angel son, did he? And verse 6, when God's firstborn comes into the world, the angels worship him. Or jump down to verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit here beside me as my second in charge? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Or verse 14, here's something you may not have thought about. What are angels? Well, they're serving spirits actually sent to serve us. So so they're not even greater than us, let alone greater than Jesus. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? They're less than Jesus. So what's the point of chapter 1? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 2 and notice the therefore. Now, the other good thing I'm looking forward to in Hebrews is that because it's written as a sermon, the application is always there. Time and again, we get the introduction, the Old Testament verses, the explanation, and then the application. And I go, fantastic. It's exactly what I need. I don't need to think it up. It's right there. And we've got it here. Do you see that in chapter 2, verse 1? What's the point of Jesus being a better messenger than angels? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. These Jewish Christians, they're being tempted to let go of Jesus, uh, to turn back, if not to angels, at least to the message that angels brought, back to the Jewish rules and regulations and to leave Jesus behind. But the application is that if Jesus really is God's son, if he speaks with God's authority, if he sits at God's right hand, if angels worship him, then you better make sure that you pay attention to him. You see, verses 2 to 4 are like the warning of a high-voltage sign on an electricity, uh, electricity substation. Don't fool around. Start paying attention so that you don't drift away. Verse 2, For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? In other words, if you think the word that came from angels was scary, if there was punishment from disobeying the laws delivered by angels, then don't try messing with Jesus. He's come with a message of how to escape God's punishment. He's come with a message of great salvation from God himself. Verse 3, it's a message that was backed up by the apostles who brought the gospel to us. It was a message that was supported, verse 4, by God himself when he did miracles among us. You know, every day we are constantly bombarded with information. I don't know if you're someone who's got uh, notifications turned on or off on your phone. Some of us like to to get all that information. Uh, Others of us like to choose what we're going to get. 
But whether it's our phone or whether it's advertising in all its forms, uh, whether it's scam emails or fake phone calls, whether it's tweets or social media notifications or fake news stories, our phone calls come in and we get to decide whether we're going to answer it or not because the phone tells us who's calling. See, we have to make choices as to who we're going to listen to and who we're going to ignore. Who's reliable and significant and relevant and useful? Who do I want to listen to? Who do I want to keep my notifications turned on for and who do I want to turn off? Can I say, out of all the different messages you need to filter and rank and choose or reject, this message from Jesus, that's the one you can't afford to ignore. Uh, I wonder if you've ever noticed the safety card they put in the front pocket in uh, your aeroplane seat. You know, the one that's got the pictures of the, uh, the exit doors and the, the inflatable uh, chutes that go down and then the, the inflatable raft at the bottom. There's all the information about how you can be saved if your plane lands in water. Uh, but most people don't pay attention to those cards. Perhaps they think that they know it already. But I wonder if you've ever noticed, down the bottom, there's this little instruction. It says, if you ever have to ditch and you have to slide down the ramp and there's the inflatable raft at the bottom, if you're a woman, make sure you take off your high heels first. Because otherwise you might puncture the, 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 the life raft. Now that's a warning that you should take notice of, isn't it? So just imagine for a moment, you're flying in from, say, Portugal, and your plane's just crash-landed in the water off Sydney Heads, and you've survived. You're there in the plane, but it's slowly sinking. But then the cabin attendant manages to press the button and the inflatable chute inflates and there's the life raft at the bottom. And you're sliding down the ramp, the raft, sorry, down the chute, thinking how incredible that you've made it out alive, and you land in the life raft at full feet first, full force in your high heels and you puncture the raft and the raft sinks and you die. Well, you know, salvation was there, it was printed on the card, but you didn't, take, you didn't pay attention to it. And now it's too late. Well, Hebrews says Jesus has come and he's offering a, a truer salvation than anything that's ever come before. And if there's judgment from ignoring the message of angels... How much greater is the danger you're in if you ignore the message of Jesus? These Jewish Christians, they were turning away from Jesus and they were going back to law and priests and sacrifices. Things that were only meant to prepare people for Jesus. And so they end up facing judgment because they've stopped listening to Jesus. So here's the, the, the rub for us. Pay careful attention to Jesus so you don't drift away. It's an interesting little phrase, isn't it, to drift away. It's like the boat that gradually drifts away from the dock, little by little. It's not intentional, it's not drastic, it's not definite. Most people don't choose to drift away from Jesus. It just happens one small step, one small decision at a time. Uh, people can do that in all sorts of ways. Uh, Bible reading just becomes 
less important. You've read it before, you've got a tick beside each of the books of the Bible and it's all done, so you can put it on the shelf. You don't bother with home group anymore. Little by little, you start to listen to Jesus a little less until eventually the Bible stays on the shelf gathering dust. Maybe it's about your life choices. You think uh, you used to be sure about what was right and what was wrong, but then you made a choice and did what you knew was wrong and the world didn't fall apart. And so you did it more often and, and you occasionally felt bad and you repented of it, but little by little your conscience hardened like a callous until it no longer felt wrong and you stopped feeling guilty and you stop listening to Jesus. Or maybe there's actually something that is pulling you more strongly than your love for Jesus. Perhaps fitting with your friends, or a new romance, or a big mortgage on a new house, or the chance of promotion, or saving for that holiday. And little by little, the importance of Jesus fades. Or perhaps it happens when some kind of suffering or difficulty or trial comes your way and, and you get angry at God and, and you're bitter and you complain and you stop praying and you think you know better and you blame God. Or maybe Jesus just seems a bit boring and so you start looking for a fresh experience, something that's more exciting, a, a new prophecy or a new revelation but not realising that every new thing is actually just a way of going backwards and that all of those things are actually second rate when God has actually spoken to us in his son. Or Christians who, who give up on church because, well, people in church disappoint them. Maybe they don't feel like they connect or, or maybe someone messes up and hurts their feelings. But church is not primarily about people. It's great if there are friends there, but church is about Jesus and us encouraging each other to look to him. Other people lose sight and drift away from Jesus when they've been in church for decades and they start to think that salvation comes from being in the church rather than being in Jesus. Or perhaps it comes from correct theology. Or perhaps salvation comes from singing the right hymns or being on the right committees. But salvation doesn't come from any of those things. It only comes from Jesus. There's no better way or easier way or more exciting way or smarter way. Jesus is the final word from God. So pay careful attention to him so you don't drift away. He's worth it. God appointed him heir of everything. He made the universe through him. He's the radiance of God's glory. He sustains everything by his powerful word. He provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And he's as superior to the angels as his name is superior to theirs. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these reminders of what Jesus is like of his infinite worth, uh, his 
awesome power, uh, the accuracy, the, the enormity of his communication of who you are to us. Uh, help us as individuals, help us as a church to uh, pay attention to him and not to drift away. Help us uh, to help others not to do that as well. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.